Well, as I said before, we've been going through Paul Tripp's book on awe. And if you remember last Sunday as we were together, we talked about what Paul Tripp calls all amnesia. That idea that we need to be actively in the process of remembering because forgetting is our default setting. We forget easily and we tend to specifically forget good things. Now I can remember some mean things that people said to me and did to me. But uh, remembering the things that God has done and the ways that he's provided, the times we cried out to him in prayer and he answered, we tend to forget those things and our forgetting leads us away from praising Him and in standing in awe of Him in the way that He's worthy. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy to be praised. And the more we forget, the more we walk down the path of forsaking. Uh, and we talked about that last week and looked at a couple of the chapters from, from the book. Well, this evening we're going to continue in that. And really we're going to spend most of our time in one chapter that... Paul Tripp just simply entitles complaining. So let me, well, let me just, let me first, this is, if this will work. Oh, there we go. I don't know if that says anything about your week. <clears throat> what causes grumbling and complaining? Disappointment, okay. A focus on self, all right? Setting my own standards, okay? Lack of gratitude, yes, as our picture describes here. Yes. Lack of gratitude. Sometimes it's easy to think just that idea in general, what causes grumbling and complaining. It may be a little more difficult when I change that question up a little bit and I add the possessive pronoun and I say, what's the cause of my grumbling and complaining? Some of the things that I said before so easily tend to shift to answers like, I don't know, money problems, work problems, family problems, my wife, my husband, my kids, dog. If you own a cat, that's your own fault. Sorry. Sickness, neighbors, politics. The truth of the matter is, as Paul Tripp mentions, none of these are the cause of our complaining. None of these are the cause of our complaining. Our complaining is ultimately, as Paul Tripp would say, no shocker, an all problem. It's an all problem. Now, before we go on, I do want to make this point, and, and this is kind of a side note. Paul Tripp doesn't make this point in the book, but I think it's important when we think about complaint. There is in Scripture positive complaint. And one of the key factors when it comes to positive complaint, it is that is, it is directed toward God, to Him. I am taking the concerns, the, the, uh, um, my struggles, my problems, to the Lord in prayer. Many times, that results in outward praise, worship of God. It always results in me accepting or ultimately saying, 
but God, you, you know best. Psalm 102 is a great example of that, and for time's sake, we won't go and look there, but you can. And it's like several other psalms. There are a lot of really hard, difficult things that are laid out in there, but in verse 12, there's this turn that says, but, but you, Lord, but you. And out of that same mouth where all of this wrestling and struggling is being being spoken of, there's also this declaration of God's goodness and a submission to His will. So there is positive complaint in Scripture. It's where I go to God, and it's directed towards Him. It ultimately, I would say, ultimately leads to praise. Whether it's verbal praise where I'm, I'm praising God, or whether it's just that praise of submission where I say, but God, I trust You. I trust Your will. I trust Your plans. That is a part of... Now there is, and I couldn't, I saw, I couldn't, yeah. There is negative complaint. What? Well, no, it wasn't. There is also negative complaint, obviously. Negative complaint. Now here's the big difference in negative complaint. Negative complaint is not directed to God, it's directed against God. It's against His character. Negative complaint is a failure to trust God and submit to His will. We really have two words in that that verse that we know well, Philippians chapter 2, starting in um, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or dispute is what the ESV says. Others would say grumbling and complaining. Grumbling is that mutter and discontent. It has that idea connected with the emotions. It's, it's almost even in the word in English. It's kind of that grumble. You know, that's what you, you think of, right? Complaining is like it's translated in the, in the ESV. It's, it's disputing. It's a failure to trust God or submit to His will. A rejection of God's providence. Many times it comes down to God's plans, as some of you already mentioned, versus my expectations. This is what I thought was going to happen, or maybe better yet, this is what I thought should have happened, and this is what is happening. This is the person I thought I was marrying, and this is the person I got. God, you messed up. Paul Tripp elsewhere says this in a, A sermon that he gave, grumbling is saying, I deserve better, and I know better. I deserve better, and I know better. Now this type of evaluation comes when, who's at the center? Self. That type of thinking, that type of evaluation is made when I'm at the center, and not God. Our problem is not just what we are dealing with, Paul Tripp says in the book. More foundationally, is about our view, our, our, more foundationally is about how our view of God shapes how we see and deal with things. Oh, look at that. I'm behind. I'm sorry. 
one of the quotes that I, I think is really good. If praise is celebrating God's awesome glory, like we saw this morning in John chapter 12, then complain is anti-praise. Not only does complaint fail to recognize his grandeur, it questions his power and character. Complaint is alllessness verbalized. If you have your Bibles, turn to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter 1. Find an example of this in Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 1, starting with verse 19. When we set out from Hebron and went through all the great and terrifying wilderness that you saw on the way to the hill country of the Ammonites, as the Lord our God commanded us, and we came to Kedesh Barnea, and I said to you, we have come to the hill country of the Ammonites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord the God of your fathers has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the city into which we shall come. The thing seemed good to me and I took twelve men from you, one man from each tribe. And they turned and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and spied it out. And they took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to us and brought us word again and said, is it, a, it is a good land that the Lord our God is giving us. Yet you would not go up, but you rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hates us, He has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying the people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of Anakim there. Then I said to you, do not be in dread or afraid of them. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight for you just as he did with you in Egypt before your eyes and in the wilderness where you have seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son all the way that you went until you came to this place. Yet in spite of this word, you did not believe the Lord your God. We'll stop there. So here we have a, a scene, and a pivotal scene, obviously, in the history of, of Israel. They have been delivered out of Egypt. They have taken a pit stop, if you will, by, um, by the, the mountain uh, to, to get the law of God. And now they've moved on and they've come to Kedesh Barnea, so they're right on the verge of entering into the promised land, the land that God had promised them in the covenant that He had made with Abraham. So they get to that point, and what does God say to them? Do what? Take the land. 
Go in. Go get him. I'm going with you. That's what he says. And as we find, it is so often the case, and as we talked about last week, you'll notice in the second part of this from, from verses 29 to 32, Moses goes back and he recounts to them how the Lord has faithfully cared for them. All through the wilderness, it talks about carrying them like a father carries his son. God took care of them all along the way. He cared for them all along the way. But then they come to this point, and I think it, in verses 20 and 21, Moses even reminds them of the promises of God. Go in and take it. The Lord's going to be with you. He's going to help you to do this. This is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made. So He's been faithfully caring for you. He's made this promise to go in with you. He's promised to give you this land. He's been faithful to all of His other promises. And what does Israel decide to do in verse 27? They complain. In verse 20 it says, verse 27 it says, and you murmured in your tents and said. Now that's interesting, that idea of murmuring there again, the notion of grumbling. Where are they grumbling? I also find this very interesting. In their tents. Now I know, I know, I know, I know, none of us do this. But I find it fascinating that here, their complaint is not voiced out loud in public. But in the privacy of their own tent. Maybe they had insulated walls, I don't know. Doesn't seem like a tent would be a good place to grumble and expect your neighbors not to hear. But in their tent they grumble. Oh, how often is that the case? I can show up on a Sunday morning and I can raise my hands as we sing, or maybe not raise my hands. I can stand while we sing praises to the Lord. I can say amen at moments in the sermon. I can highlight truths about God in my Bible. And then, maybe even before I get into the front door, maybe when all the doors to the car are shut, many times one of the first words out of my mouth can be, can you believe what so-and-so did today? I don't understand why they haven't changed that yet. Complaint can be the first thing that comes out. But here, obviously, in Deuteronomy, the Lord knew these things. He was in their tents with them. So they murmur and they they complain. Who's ultimately the object of their complaint? God is. It's interesting, they take no personal responsibility here. Did you notice that? They blame God, verse 27, and then they blame the spies that they said they wanted to send into the land. Their brothers who came back and gave them this report. And because of this murmuring, their complaint, they come up with this conclusion. What's their conclusion ultimately? Yeah, they were going to die. We can't do it. I think it's even more severe than that. Look at what they say. Because the, the Lord hated us. He brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. 
So not only have they now rewritten God's story, they have also clearly assigned God motives. Here's what's going to happen, God, despite what you say. We're going to go in there and the Amorites are going to destroy us. And the reason it's going to happen is because you hate us. Those are strong, strong words. Their problem was not ultimately a problem with the height of the wall of fortified city. Their problem was not ultimately a problem with the size of the warriors or the people living in the promised land. What was their ultimate problem? Yeah. Their problem was their view of God. That was their problem. Their problem, as Paul Tripp would say, is ultimately an all problem. So Paul Tripp then walks through, and we're just going to use this, because there's lots of places that we could go with this, and, and we don't have time to, to run down every possible trail with the notion of complaining. But he lays out in the chapter uh, a test. Five tests to check the prescription of my theological lenses, if you will, when it comes to complaining. So I just want to run down those questions and use them as a means to help us as we continue to move through this. Before we ask these questions, though, I I, I want to say that, and this is one of the things that Paul Tripp asks, that we stop and we think about this in relation to everyday life. He says this, the unconscious theology that we embrace may differ significantly from the theology we say we believe when we are making conscious theological commitments. That's not to say that one is unimportant and, or, or anything like that. It's just to say that what we might say when we're not in our tent, if you will, could be very different than what we say when we're in our tent. So as we think through these questions, we want to think about what we're actually saying the way we actually answer them. So the first question is this. Is God good? Is God good? Well, again, it's easy to quickly answer that yes. From a theological standpoint, we know that. We know that God is good. But when we think on the level of life, is that always the way it seems? It's not always easy to give that a a resounding yes. Why is that? What causes me at times, in my mind I can say and I can know that God is good, but then there are moments in my life where when I think about that, I begin to call that into question. Okay, maybe something's not going my way. Okay, I think I need to understand it all. It hurts. Yes, I'm uncomfortable. Ouch. I think part of the reason is that God's good from His eternal view. And that eternal view doesn't always line up with my limited view. Much less does it always feel good or necessarily look good to us. 
You see, it's easy to make ourselves the reference point for the definition of good. What is good? That's an important question when asking this question. If I'm the reference point for good, my comfort, what's predictable, what's pleasurable, what's easy, if I start with that, me as the center, and then move out from there, and I ask the question, is God good, and something's happening in my life that hurts, that's uncomfortable, that's not pleasurable, that's not easy, then I might find myself saying, I'm not sure that God is good. The second question is this, will God do what He promised? Will God do what He promised? We are weak, finite people. God calls us to hard, sacrificial things. So we want to know that He's reliable. Will He keep His promises? Now it's easy to read Deuteronomy and to kind of make a mockery of Israel. But I want you to imagine this ragtag bunch of people who are thinking about going into a land of fortified cities where there are warriors. It was not comfortable. This was not something that they did every day. Right? I mean, for many years they had been slaves. That's what they knew. Slavery in Egypt. It's what they knew, and as we know, because Scripture tells us elsewhere in Numbers that their plan at this point in Kedesh Barnea was not only did they say, no, we're not going in, but they decided they would do what? They're going to appoint a leader and let's go back to Egypt. That's what we know. That's what's comfortable to us. When God calls us to hard and sacrificial things, we can find ourselves asking this question, will He keep His promises? God's promises are a means of His daily sufficient grace to us. Paul Tripp says God's promises are meant to blow your mind and settle your heart. So when doubt replaces all, we will soon give up. If I begin to question God's promises, then it becomes easy to begin to give up on those hard sacrificial things that God is calling me to do. One simple example of that is, as Dan Lee prays for us almost every Sunday night, that we'll take advantages of the opportunities that God gives to us, the people that come across our paths. And while I might not say it out loud, there are some moments in this day and time and in in what all is going on around us where I can find myself honestly doubting, you know, Lord, would you could you possibly use me to share the gospel with someone and they would come to faith in Jesus Christ? And the moment that doubt begins to enter into my mind, what happens? I start to shrink away from that opportunity. Instead of the promise of God standing there encouraging me that Jesus has other sheep, they'll hear His voice and they'll come and they'll become part of one fold, I shrink away. When we doubt the promises of God, we're ultimately not just doubting 
the promises themselves, but we're doubting Him. We're questioning His ability or willingness to fulfill the promises that He has made. Next question is this, is God in control? Paul Tripp mentions that the other questions kind of end up falling in on this question or are connected to this question. If God makes promises and wants to keep them, but doesn't have the ability to keep them, well, that's not very helpful, is it? Right? If God is good but not in control, then His goodness never really impacts my life. If God's really, really good, but it's in some land far, far away, that doesn't help me at all. Again, it's easy to answer the, this with the resounding yes. Of course God is in control. But if on the life level I don't believe that God's in control, what will I try to do? Take control. Right? If I'm not convinced that God is in control, and as we already mentioned that He's good, then I'm going to try and take control. And I don't know if you've experienced this in your life, but the more I try and take control of my life, guess what happens to my complaint meter? It goes through the roof. Because no matter... Yeah. Because no matter how hard I try and control situations and circumstances and people and dogs and children, they don't listen to me. And if everyone would understand that because no one else is taking control, I need to take control. And if everyone would just fall in line with my will and my plan, which is so good according to my perspective, then I wouldn't need to complain. Right? When I try to take control, I'm not seeing God rightly. I'm not in awe of Him. The next question, fourth question, does God have the needed power? Again, it's easy to say, of course He does. But it's so difficult for us as extremely limited beings to comprehend a limitless God. I mean, I don't know if you've seen movies or thought about what battle in the Old Testament was like. But it wasn't, didn't consist of launching cruise missiles from some command station somewhere. It consisted of lining up and charging in. It's easy to say in a comfortable air-conditioned building sitting on comfy seats, yes, God is limitless in His power. But if I was standing there at Kedesh Barnea and I'm looking at the limited resources that I have, if I'm a mother and my son is old enough to be one that's supposed to charge in there and take on these supposed giants in these fortified cities, would I find it difficult to stand firm on the limitless power of my God to be able to overcome those walls and those warriors? Absolutely. Absolutely. The Bible tells us in so many ways about the amazing power of God. And then the Bible tells us in Romans 8, 
verse 11, that that amazing power that accomplished the resurrection of Jesus Christ is where? In us. In us. You will only have peace in the face of your own weakness, failures, foils, and inabilities when you are in awe of God's awesome power. You will only rise up to do what you do not have the natural ability to do when you know that God's awesome power is with you. You know, I would venture to say if that moment has never come to you, then it might just be that you're living a way too comfortable life. If I'm never finding a moment where I'm pushed to my end and I'm saying, God, if you don't do something here, we're in trouble. Then it may be that something needs to change. I don't think I came to that moment until we were in France and I was maybe a weekend to language courses. And I'm going, Lord, if you don't do something, it happens when you're standing in a Muslim country and you're listening to the call to prayer go out and you're saying, God, are you able, are you powerful enough to penetrate that Muslim heart and open their eyes to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and He's the only hope that they have. I can stand in the face of things, problems, trials, difficulties much bigger than me only because I know nothing is bigger than the God who stands with me. The last question, does God care about me? This might be the question we ask most when we face difficult situations. God's care is foundational. It lets me know that all that He is, He is for me. His care means He will be good for me. His care means He will do what He promises for me. His care means He will exercise His control for me. His care means He will unleash His awesome power for me. All of His care allows me to embrace the hope found in all His other qualities. When we question God's care, He might be good, powerful, in control, and faithful. But will He be those things for, for me or to me? When we question God's care, we lose hope, become disappointed, and complain. We might even become envious of what we perceive God is doing in someone else's life and is failing to do in our own. So as you think through those things and you think through maybe some of the things that you're wrestling with, maybe the things that unfortunately your mouth has given voice and complaint to throughout this week, how are you responding to those questions? The truth of the matter is is that complaint is a, a really serious thing and unfortunately it's one of the sins that we're rather comfortable with. 
complaining about situations and circumstances doesn't often alarm us like other sins tend to. And yet, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, uh, verse 10 is where we, we actually find the word, but in that, in that course there is where Paul talks about God has not given us or won't give us over to any temptation that is uncommon to man, but He'll provide a way of escape, right? How does He start out with that in verse 10? That the example given to us of Israel and their murmuring is not one that we're to follow. And yet, what do we find ourselves often doing? We come in and we can question God and what He's doing in our lives, the trials that He brings to us. I think one of the things that provides a unique challenge for us, and this is kind of moves us into the next chapter, and we're not going to take long here, obviously, because our, our time is running short, but the next chapter, Paul Tripp deals with materialism. And in our culture, I think materialism can affect our answers to the, those five questions that we asked in some pretty serious ways. Now, when we use the, the, the phrase materialism, we're not just saying having a big car or lots of money in a bank account. When we think about materialism, it's that we're looking to materials to give us what only God can. It's not just that I want to have lots of money just for the sake of having lots of money. It's that I think if I have lots of money, then I can get control, right? Because my world feels out of control and I can't predict what's going to happen next. But if I could just get enough money, what will it give me? It'll give me the ability to try and keep the circumstances of my life where I want them to be. And if they happen to fall to one side or the other, the car breaks down, my house burns, the cat gets run over, whatever it might be, I can fix it with all this money that I have. I think that maybe climbing the corporate ladder will help me gain the power that I want because I'm not certain that God has enough power to watch over me. I think the things I have will make my life good, so I count on them more than the promises of God. So one sense of that materialism is that sense that I begin looking to the material things to, to give me what I'm not really relying on God to give me. Or, that materialism can be this, that I base my answers on those five questions solely on the basis of physical things. So when I ask the question, is God good or is He keeping His problems, I look at my immediate physical circumstances and situations. My answer to God's goodness might be the same as how much money do I have in my bank account. My answer to God's goodness might be, am I healthy? My answer to God's goodness might be, are my kids healthy? I turn to physical things to respond to that, while God in His goodness wants to produce in us things that can't be hung in a closet or put in a storage shed. Things that you can't take a picture of and post on Instagram or Facebook. There are things like talks about in James that the testing of our faith would produce patience. How do you take a picture of that with your iPhone? Even the iPhone 7. I don't think it has that capability, even with the fancy new camera. Right? 
God wants to produce those things in us. And so when we become and when we live in such a material culture that so many times encourages us to say, is life, when it asks the question, is life going well? Is it a good life? Where does it immediately turn? To material possessions. To your physical circumstances and says, well, if these things aren't going well, if you only have a three-bedroom house, then you're not doing as good as the guy who has four-bedroom house. And if you're driving a Toyota, you're not doing as well as the guy who's driving a BMW. The B there stands for blessing. I'm not sure what the rest of it is, right? That's, it's got to be what that means. And so in looking to physical possessions, we can find ourselves answering those five questions in a wrong way. We complain so much, not because we have horizontal problems, Paul Tripp says. It's not really because things this way aren't going right, but because we have a vertical problem. That's ultimately the problem when it comes to complaint. When I complain, I essentially ascend to the throne room of God and say, God, I have a better plan, and if you would give me your power, I'll just show you. God, I've got a better plan, and if you'll give me your power, I'll show you. But when all fills our heart, all means your heart will be filled more with a sense of blessing than with a sense of want. All produces gratitude. Gratitude instills joy. And the harvest of joy, Paul Tripp says, is contentment. All produces gratitude. Gratitude instills joy. And the harvest of joy is contentment. But it starts with my view of Him. That's where it starts. That, that's where it ultimately is. So what do we do this week when we find ourselves complaining? How do we battle this? Well, the world might say that we begin, I don't know, we take a step back, do some yoga. I don't know what it is, maybe. How do we practically apply this then? How does all of God this week help me? Because I am going to be tempted to complain this week, probably before I go to bed tonight. The opportunity will present itself, right? I don't know why we ever, where we ever came up with that phrase, I can't complain. I have never been in a situation where I cannot complain. Right? Somebody asks how you're doing. Oh, I can't complain. Really? So how, how do we apply this? How do we take it and apply it so that this week when I face complaint, I can wrestle with it instead of just complaining? You're like, wait, what? You're supposed to do this. Okay, pray about the situation. Yeah. Okay, remind yourself of the things that you are grateful for. Which is exactly what Moses does in Deuteronomy. In response to Israel's uh, decision, their conclusion... Moses turns around and he reminds them of how God has faithfully cared for them. I 
think a great thing to do would just be to begin, start with one of those questions. Just start with, is God good? In this moment, right now, with what's going on, is God good? And what makes Him good? Does something that's happening in my life right now, which I may not like, does it change the goodness of God? Has what my child just did shifted the cosmos and now God's no longer good? Has this vehicle pulling out in front of me somehow shifted the goodness of God? Stop and I ask, is God good? Is He in control? Does He care about me? Are His promises still good in this moment? Is He powerful enough right now to change my circumstances if there were possibly better circumstances for me to have? A better situation to be in. See, what happens is I begin to direct myself away from this and limiting myself to this horizontal and begin focusing on the vertical and begin asking myself about my all problem. Well, may the Lord help us this week as we are tempted to complain, living in a fallen and broken world where we have real problems and real difficulties to not allow ourselves to be the sinner, to be the judge, to be the determining factor, but rather to turn in all of God and allow His goodness, His control, His faithfulness to His promises, His limitless power, and His care for us to wow us, to overwhelm us, so that we will be, right? This is what that Philippians passage leads to, right? So that we will be that light that we're supposed to be. Holding out hope to this world. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful that you are good. And we're thankful that you are patient with us. Your patience is so evident as you worked with the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And when they got to Kedesh Barnea, it was not the first time they complained. It was one in, in a long line of complaint in times that they had that they had complained about their situation and circumstances. And over and over again, you showed yourself to be faithful. We're thankful that you are just who you say you are. You are a God who's slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And yet, Lord, we ask that this week, in a very practical way, you would help us so that that we do not give voice to complaint, that we do not, um, in our hearts, rebel against your will and your plan and your providence in our lives. But rather, as we come across difficult things, situations and circumstances that we don't like, that we would choose a different path if we could, that we will remind ourselves of who you are. We will remind ourselves that you're good, that you're faithful, that you have limitless power, that you're in control, and that you care about us. And may instead of our complaint coming out, may we turn towards you, directing the concerns that we have before you, laying them in front of you, because we know that you care and you hear and you're able to act and you do act. And then may our lips give voice to the praise that rise up in our hearts as we stand in awe of who you are. 
I'm thankful, God, that we don't have to deal with complaint by trying to make up a God or someone out there who's able to help us. But that really, um, really, if we just if we just saw you as you are, if we just were able to really comprehend you, behold your glory, I don't think we would ever complain again. So it's, it's with glad hearts that we go into this week knowing that standing in awe of you helps us in this really super practical way of wrestling with our battles of complaint. Give us a bigger view of you, God, for your glory's sake and for our good. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.